Chapter 54 They abandoned their entourage of guards in the elevator on the top floors. No one cared that it would be too easy to deduce where they were heading. Hopefully, by the time anyone snapped out of Cinder's brainwashing, they'd be long gone. The research wing's emergency service elevator was kept on its own, in an alcove tucked away from the rest of the wing. It was their final obstacle and Cress had taken care to ensure it would be functioning properly when they arrived. She stumbled ahead of them to punch in the code, emotionally drained. It felt as if her brain were churning through sludge, and it took her a moment to remember the code at all. The elevator opened, and they crowded inside. No one spoke, whether out of respect for Dr. Erland, or out of a tenuous hope that they were so close, so very close. The doors opened onto the roof, Dusk was climbing over the city, glistening off the palace windows and coating the landing pad in purple shadows. And the rampion was there. Its ramp lowered toward them. Cress laughed, an abrupt, delirious laugh that felt like it was being ripped out of her throat. Iko let out a victorious whoop and ran for the ramp, screaming, We did it! Thorn's grip tightened on Cress's arm. He's here. He's here she whispered back. Wolf alone slowed down, baring his teeth. Kai was still draped over his shoulder. Jason, ready for takeoff, now, Cinder yelled toward the ship. Where? Her words fell short, and she slowed, then stopped altogether. Cress gasped and locked her hands around Thorne's arm, holding him back. A figure appeared at the top of the cargo bay ramp, her white coat and long sleeves made her look like a ghost haunting their ship, blocking their way to freedom. Cress's instincts screamed at her to run, to hide, to get as far away from Mistress Sybil as she could. But when she glanced behind her, she saw that the thaumaturge wasn't alone. Half a dozen lunar guards had crowded in behind them, blocking off their path to the elevator. The elevator that wouldn't have worked anyway. She'd programmed it to shut down once they reached the rooftop so that no one could follow them. It wouldn't work again until the timer she'd set on the security mainframe ticked down and the system rebooted itself. Which meant they had no place to run, no place to hide. They were 40 steps from their ship, and they were trapped. Cinder's momentary elation evaporated as she looked up at the thaumaturge. She should have sensed her immediately, her and the guards, before she'd even stepped off the elevator. But she'd been so distracted with the sensation of success, she'd gotten cocky, and now they were surrounded. What a lovely reunion, said Sybil, her sleeves snapping in the rooftop wind. Had I known you were all going to come to me, I wouldn't have wasted half as much energy attempting to find you. Cinder tried to keep her focus on Sybil as she took stock of her allies. Wolf was slightly in front of her, snarling as he set Kai on the ground. Though he wasn't showing any pain, she could see a small spot of blood on Wolf's dress shirt. His stitches must have come undone, reopening the wound. Iko wasn't far from him, the only one of them not panting. Cress and Thorn were to Cinder's left. Thorn had a cane, and she thought he might still have his gun, too but he and Wolf could easily become liabilities, weapons to be toyed with by the thaumaturge, unlike Cress and Iko, who couldn't be controlled. How many? Thorn asked. Mistress Sybil, in front of us, said Cress, and 
six lunar guards behind. After the slightest hesitation, Thor nodded. I accept those odds. So charming, said Sybil, tilting her head. My little protege has been embraced by cyborgs and androids and criminals, the scum of Earth and society. Quite fitting for a useless shell. From the corner of her eye, Cinder noticed Thorn easing himself as a shield between Cress and the thaumaturge. But it was Cress who lifted her chin, with a look more confident than Cinder had ever seen on her. You mean the useless shell that just disconnected the link to all your palace surveillance equipment? Sybil clicked her tongue. Arrogance doesn't suit you, dear. What do I care if the connection has been severed? Soon, this palace will be the home of Queen Levana. She nodded. Guards, leave his majesty and the special operative unharmed. Kill the rest. Cinder heard the thunk of boots, the rustle of uniforms, the click of guns being released from their holsters. She opened her thoughts to them. Six lunar men, six royal guards who, just like Jason, had been trained to keep their minds open, trained to be puppets. She sought out the electric pulses around them. In unison, all six guards turned toward the edge of the rooftop and threw their guns as hard as they could. Six handguns sailed out of sight, clattering somewhere on the tiled rooftops below. Sybil let out a screech of laughter, the most unrestrained Cinder had ever witnessed from her. You have learned a few things since we last saw each other, haven't you? Sybil paced down the ramp. <laughs> Not that controlling a handful of guards is any impressive feat. Her gaze flickered to Wolf. Abandoning the guards, Cinder reached out for him instead, bracing herself for the sharp burst of pain inside her head that happened every time she took control of Wolf. But the pain didn't come. Wolf's mind was already closed to her, as if someone had locked his writhing energy up in a vault. Then he swiveled toward Cinder his face contorting with a feral hunger. Cursing, Cinder took half a step back. Her memory flashed to all the duels inside the cargo bay. And then, Wolf launched himself at her. Ducking, Cinder held her hands toward his abdomen and used his momentum to flip him over her head. He landed lithely on his feet and spun back, aiming a right hook for her jaw. Cinder deflected with her metal fist, but the force drove her off balance and she fell onto the hard asphalt of the landing pad. Planting both hands on the ground, she drove her heel up toward Wolf, catching him in the side, his wounded side. She hated herself for it, but he grunted in pain and stumbled half a step back. She sprang back to her feet. She was already panting. Warnings flooded her retina display. Wolf licked his lips as he prepared to charge for her a second time revealing the glint of his sharp teeth. Smothering her panic, Cinder tried to reach for him again. If only she could break Sybil's mental hold. If only she'd gotten to him first. She searched for some flicker of the wolf she knew was encased inside all that fury and bloodlust, some vulnerable spot in his mind. She was so distracted by her attempts to dislodge Sybil's control that she didn't notice the roundhouse kick until it had crashed into the side of her head and sent her reeling halfway across the platform. She lay on her side, dizzy, white sparks flashing in her vision, and her left arm burning from skidding across the ground. Breath wouldn't come into her lungs. She couldn't lift her head. 
Programming diagnostics were going berserk, and it took her a moment to remember how to send them away so she could focus. As her vision cleared, she noticed shapes moving against the twilight sky. People in shadows, fighting, brawling. The hazy images were eventually coupled with grunts of pain. The guards had attacked. Thorn had gotten a knife from somewhere. Cress was wildly swinging his cane, and Iko was using her metal and silicon limbs as best she could to defend herself. But Thorn was blind, and Iko wasn't programmed with fighting skills, and as soon as one of the guards grabbed the cane out of Cress's hands, she fell to her knees, paralyzed, cowering behind her arms. As Cinder watched, a guard caught Thorn's wrist and yanked it behind his back. He cried out, the knife fell. Another guard landed a punch to his stomach. Then, Cinder heard a growl. Wolf was crouched, ready to come at her again. Cinder resisted the urge to close her eyes and brace for impact, instead letting a slow breath out through her nose. She urged her muscles to relax with it. Your mind and body have to work together. For a moment, it was like being two people at once. Her eyes were open, focused on Wolf as he lunged for her, and her body, loose and relaxed, instinctively rolled away before she bounced back to her feet. At the same time, her lunar gift sought out the pulses of energy around her, targeted the six guards, and wrapped so tightly around them it was like clasping them in enormous metal fists. There was a jolt of surprise from the guards. One crashed to his knees, two fell onto their sides, convulsing. Cinder dodged another punch, blocked another kick. Her instincts yearned to use the knife inside her finger, but she refused. Wolf wasn't the enemy. She landed an uppercut to his jaw, her first solid strike as those words infiltrated her brain. Wolf isn't the enemy. A blur of blue caught her eye. Iko jumped onto Wolf's back with a battle cry, wrapping her legs around his waist. Her arms surrounded his head, trying to blind or suffocate or distract him any way she could. She was successful for 2.3 seconds before Wolf reached behind him, grabbed hold of her head, and twisted with such force the skin ripped around her throat. The wiring along her upper spine popped and sparked. Iko slipped off him, crumpling to the ground. Her legs were twisted awkwardly beneath her. The external plating that protected her collar structure was peeled back on one side, revealing disconnected wires and a torn muscle pad already leaking thick yellow silicon down her shoulder. Cinder stumbled and crashed to her knees, staring at the crooked form. Her internal audio latched onto that awful sound and began replaying it over and over. That same brutal snap, that same heavy thud as Iko's body hit the ground. Her stomach heaved once, but she kept it down as she peeled her gaze away from Iko and looked not at Wolf but at Sybil. The thaumaturge was standing at the base of the ramp now. Her beautiful face was pinched in concentration. In her distant thoughts, Cinder could tell that the guards were picking themselves off the ground, rounding on her friends again. Snarling, she ignored them all. She ignored Wolf. Sybil was the enemy. Wolf turned back to face her. His feet pounded on the pavement, but Cinder was too focused on the bioelectricity rolling off Sybil to care. Sybil's energy was twisted and arrogant and proud, and Cinder had just slipped into the cracks of her thoughts when the impact came. Wolf crashed into her, 
knocking her over, but Cinder barely felt it. While Wolf pinned her to the ground, Cinder was working her way around Sybil's gift, becoming intimately acquainted with how the energy rippled along her limbs and fingers, how it was so different from the way the same energy churned and throbbed inside her brain. As Wolf revealed his sharp canines, Cinder discovered where Sybil's gift was boiling hot in her attempts to control Wolf, leaving the rest of her brain cool and vulnerable. When Wolf lowered his fangs toward Cinder's unprotected throat, Cinder seized Sybil's mind and attacked. Chapter 55 Crack Cress glanced up just as Iko slid off Wolf's back, landing broken and mangled on the hard ground. A shudder tore through her. Even from this distance, she could see the torn flesh and sparking wires. What was that? She returned her attention to Thorn. She was still kneeling beside him, trying to steady him as best she could. He'd taken a hard punch to his stomach that had knocked the wind from him, but at least he was breathing and talking again. I think we just lost Iko, she said. Can you stand? Thorn groaned, still clasping one hand to his stomach. Yeah, he said, sounding none too convinced. Something shuffled, glancing up, Cress squeaked and dug her fingers into Thorn's arms. The guards, having been paralyzed and empty-faced for the past few moments, were twitching. One of them groaned. Beside her, Thorn pulled himself to his feet. There, better, he said, though he was still grimacing. Do you see my cane anywhere, or my knife? She spotted a cane behind one of the guards, whose furious gaze was no longer empty or harmless. Cress. Guards are up again, she said. Thorn flinched. All six of them? She glanced over her shoulder. And Cinder's on the ground. She might be unconscious, and Wolf's still under Sybil's control, and I, I think he's going to. She squeezed Thorn's arm, horrified at the sight of Wolf pinning Cinder to the ground. She wanted to look away, but couldn't, like being stuck in a bad dream. That all sounds very dire, said Thorn. Shivering, she pressed her back against him, wondering how her death was going to come. Her skull crushed against the concrete, her neck snapped like Iko's. I guess it's time. While Cress's thoughts continued to churn through the horrible things that could happen to her, she felt herself being suddenly spun around and dipped backwards, a supportive arm scooping beneath her back. She yelped and caught herself on Thorne's shoulder. Then, he was kissing her. The battle became a hurricane, with them caught in the eye, his arms cradling her against the wind, her skirt billowing around his legs, his lips gentle but coaxing, as if they had all the time in the world. Warmth overtook her, and Cress closed her eyes. She thought her arms wanted to wrap around his neck, but her whole body was vibrating and dizzy, and she could barely keep her fingers clutched around the fabric of his shirt. She had just finished melting when she was suddenly righted again. The world flipped. Thorn spun, embracing her against his chest with one arm while the other reached for his waist. Cress heard the gunshot and screamed, pressing herself against him, before she realized that Thorn was the one who had fired. A guard grunted. Another guard grabbed Thorn by the collar and he turned, elbowing the guard in the jaw. Cress, do me a favor. He twirled her around so that her back was against him. She was beginning to feel like a satellite being constantly spun out of orbit. 
but she had no time to think as Thorne settled his arm around her shoulder. Make sure I don't shoot anyone we like. He fired again, and the bullet clipped a guard's bicep. The guard barely flinched and lunged toward them. Gasping, Cress wrapped her hands around Thorne's and aimed. He fired again, this time hitting the guard in the chest. He stumbled backward and fell. Cress swiveled, pulling Thorne's hand toward the next guard, another shot to the chest. A third shot hit the next guard's shoulder. She aimed for the fourth. Click, click. Thorne cursed. Well, that was fun while it lasted. The guard laughed. He was tall and made of muscle, with orange-red hair that swept nearly straight up, and he was the only guard that Cress recognized. She'd seen him on the surveillance footage before, usually along with the rest of the queen's entourage, which meant he was probably the highest-ranking guard among them. If it's all right with you, he said, I'll be killing you now. <laughs> Aren't you a gentleman, Thorne said, pulling Cress behind him and raising his fists. A scream split through the wind, not just a scream, but a scream made up of pain and delirium, torture and agony. Cress and Thorne both ducked and covered their ears. And at first, Cress was terrified that it was Cinder. But when she looked, Mistress Sybil had fallen on the ground and was twitching and digging her nails into her scalp. The scream went on and on as she twisted and flailed, craning her head so fast it smacked against the asphalt, then curling up on herself like a fetus, searching for relief that wasn't coming. Cinder still appeared unconscious, with Wolf hovering over her. But then he whipped his head like a bedraggled dog and sprang away from Cinder with wild, remorseful eyes. Cinder stayed corpse-like on the ground. Stop, the red-haired guard yelled. He grabbed Cress, yanking her away from Thorn and wrapping one hand around her throat. She screamed and clawed at his wrists, but he didn't seem to notice. I said stop, or I'll crush her throat! Though he was yelling, he could hardly be heard over Sybil, and either Cinder didn't hear him or she didn't care. Or she couldn't stop. Cress tried to kick behind her, but her legs were too short, and already darkness was encroaching on her vision. Crack. The guard's fist loosened, and he toppled over, unconscious. Cress stumbled away from him, rubbing her neck. Spinning around, she saw Thorne holding his cane like a club. I found my cane, he said, tossing it once with a twirl and trying to catch the other end, but missing. The cane clattered to the floor. Thorne flinched. Are you all right? She gulped, ignoring how it burned in her throat. Y yes. Good. Thorne picked up the cane again. Now. What in the name of spades is all the screaming about? I don't know. C Cinder's doing something to Mistress Sybil, something with her gift. Well, it's annoying and we're running out of time. Come on. One of the guards they'd shot reached out for Cress's ankle as she passed, but she kicked at him as they ran for Cinder. Wolf was shaking her, but she wasn't responding. Behind them, Sybil's screams tapered into uncontrollable blubbering as she convulsed on the ground. Maybe Cinder has to be rebooted, said Thorne, after Cress had described the situation as well as she could. Uh, that happened once before. Here, he reached beneath Cinder's head, and Cress heard a click. Cinder's eyes popped open, and her hand snapped around Thorne's wrist. Crying out, he fell over onto the ground. Sybil's sobs dwindled to whimpering. Don't open my control panel, she said, releasing Thorne. She shut the plate in her head. Then stop going comatose on me. He stood up, 
Can we go now before the entire Commonwealth military shows up? Cinder sat up, blinking. Iko. Right, Wolf, could you get the android, please, and the emperor? I trust he's still around here somewhere. The emperor. In the chaos, Cress had forgotten all about him. Sirens. Cress looked at Wolf. His head was cocked to one side, heading this direction. Which means the military won't be far behind, said Cinder. I take it there's no sign of Jason? No one responded. There had been no sign of their gateway pilot since the fight had started. Cress licked her lips. Had he betrayed them? Had he told Sybil about their plan? Figures, said Cinder. Thorn, you're with me in the cockpit. Jason and I practice takeoffs. Once. You can help jog my memory. Together, they hurried to carry Iko's broken body and Kai, still unconscious, into the cargo bay. Then, they heard laughter. High, strained laughter that dropped ice down Cress's spine. Sybil was struggling to stand. She made it to her feet and took a couple wobbling steps before falling back down to one knee. She laughed again and bunched her fists into her long, unruly hair. Cress was suddenly pushed aside as Wolf trudged down the ramp and grasped Sybil by the front of her white coat, yanking her toward him. Her eyes rolled back into her head. Where is she? He yelled. Is she still alive? Even from the top of the ramp, Cress could see the hatred burning in his eyes, overshadowed only by his need to know. To be given any sliver of hope that Scarlet was still out there, that he still had a chance to save her. But Sybil's head only collapsed to one side. What? What pretty birds, she said, before she was overcome with a fit of incoherent giggles. Wolf snarled, baring his teeth. For a moment, his entire body was shaking, and Cress thought he was going to tear her throat out. But then, he dropped Sybil to the ground. She fell hard, whimpered from the impact, and rolled onto her back. Then, she started to laugh again, staring up at the sky. The sun was just setting, but the full moon had already risen high over the city's skyline. Turning away from her, Wolf marched up the ramp. He did not meet Cress's gaze as he passed her. Cress stared, bewildered, as Sybil raised both arms up toward the sky, cackling, cackling. The ramp started to rise, slowly blocking the sight of Sybil and the bleeding guards who were scattered around the rooftop. The roar of the engines soon drowned out both the mad laughter and the sirens blaring beyond the palace walls. Chapter 56 To anyone who would have seen her, Lavana was a vision of serenity in her ethereal red wedding gown and the sheer gold veil that fell to her wrists. She sat on the settee in her guest quarters, posture perfect, her hands folded in her lap. Except they were not folded at all, but rather balled into angry fists. Each one held a wedding band one that she had worn for far too many years, that she had once believed would bring her love and happiness, but had only ever brought her pain. The other was supposed to bring her not the love of a blind, selfish husband, but the love of an entire planet. She should have been wearing it now. Everything had been going so well. She had been moments away from walking down that aisle. 
moments away. She should have been married. She should have been reciting the vows that would make her empress. When she found out who was responsible for this delay, she would torment their fragile mind until they were a drooling, pathetic idiot, terrified of the sight of their own hands. A knock cut through the fantasy. Lavana shifted her eyes toward the door. Enter. One of the guards entered first, escorting Khan Torin, the young emperor's annoying, perpetually present advisor. She glared at him through her gold veil, though she knew he couldn't see it. Your illustrious majesty, he said, bowing deeply. The addition of a new adjective combined with the bow slightly lower than usual made the hair prickle on the back of her neck. I must apologize most severely for the delay and for the news I have to impart to you. We have been forced, I'm afraid, to postpone the marriage ceremony. I do beg your pardon, he straightened, but kept his gaze respectfully on the floor. His imperial majesty, Emperor Kaito, has been kidnapped. He was taken from his personal quarters and smuggled onto an untraceable spaceship. Her fingers curled around the wedding bands. By whom? Lin Cinder, your majesty, the cyborg fugitive from the ball, along with multiple accomplices, it would appear. Lin Cinder. Every time she heard the name, she wanted to spit. I see she said, finding it too wearisome to soften the hardness of her anger. Am I to believe that you did not have any security measures in place for the attempt of such an assault? Our security was compromised. Compromised? Yes, your majesty. She rose to her feet. The gown swished like a breeze around her hips. The advisor didn't flinch, although he should have. You're telling me that this teenage girl has not only escaped from your prison and evaded capture by your highly trained military, but has now invaded your palace and the private quarters of the emperor himself, kidnapped him, and again gotten away with it? Precisely correct, your majesty. And what are you doing now to retrieve my groom? We have employed every police and military unit at our dispose. Not good enough! This time, he did flinch. Lavana steadied her breathing. The Commonwealth has failed too many times with regards to Lin Cinder. Beginning now, I will employ my own resources and tactics in finding her. My guards will need to review all your security footage from the past 48 hours. The advisor clasped his hands behind his back. We are happy to give you access to the security footage we have available. However, we are missing approximately two hours of footage that was compromised this afternoon by the security breach. She sneered. Fine. Bring me what you do have. Thaumaturge Amory Park appeared in the doorway. Your Majesty, if I may request a word with you in private. With pleasure, she waved a hand at Contorin. You're dismissed, but note that the incompetence of your security team will not be ignored. With no argument and another low bow, the advisor left. As soon as he was gone, Lavana whipped the veil off her head and threw it onto the settee. 
The young emperor has been kidnapped, and from his own palace. Earthens are pathetic. It's amazing they haven't already become extinct. I do not disagree, your majesty. I trust Mr. Khan did not inform you of this evening's other interesting development. What development? Amory's eyes danced. It appears that Dr. Sage Darnell is in this palace, trapped in a quarantine room in the research wing. Sage Darnell? She paused. Daring to return after he assisted the escape of that wretched girl? No doubt they've been working together. Although I've been led to believe that Dr. Darnell won't be around for much longer. It appears he's contracted an unusual strain of letamosis, one that seems to be much faster acting than the common strain. And, of course, he is lunar. Her pulse skipped. This did open up some interesting possibilities. Take me to him, she said, sliding her true wedding ring back onto her finger. The other, that would cement her to Emperor Kaito, she left behind. I must warn you, Amory said as she followed him into the corridor, that the elevators throughout the palace are malfunctioning. We will be forced to take the stairs. Earthens, she growled, lifting the hem of her skirt. It was like traversing an endless labyrinth. But finally, they reached the research wing. A crowd of officials had gathered outside the lab, and Lavana sneered to think that they'd intended to keep this from her when Sage Darnell, like Lynn Cinder, was her problem to deal with, however it pleased her. As she entered the lab room, she slipped into the minds of the men and women around her and impressed a strong need to be elsewhere. The room was cleared within seconds, but for her and Amory. It was a crisp, chemical-smelling room, all bright lights and hard edges, and on the other side of a tinted window, Dr. Sage Darnell was laid out on a lab table, holding a gray cap against his stomach. With the exception of the security footage that showed him helping Lynn Cinder escape from prison, Lavana hadn't seen him since he disappeared over a decade ago. Once, he had been one of her most promising scientists, making grand advances in the development of her lupine soldiers on an almost monthly basis. But time had not been kind to him. His face had become worn and wrinkled. He was balding, and what was left of his hair was tuft and gray. And then there was the disease. His reptilian skin was covered in bruise-like blotches and a rash that was bubbling up like blisters, piling on top of each other. His fingertips had already begun to turn blue. No, he would not be around much longer. Lavana floated toward the window. A light was on beside a microphone, indicating that communication was open between the two rooms. My good Dr. Darnell, I did not think I would ever again have the pleasure. His eyes opened, still fervently blue behind his spectacles. His attention was locked on the ceiling, and though it occurred to Lavana that this was no doubt a one-way window, it annoyed her that he wouldn't bother to face her. Your Majesty, he said, his tone brittle. I thought I might hear your voice one more time. Beside her, Amory checked a port screen at his belt and excused himself with a low bow. 
I must say, I'm delighted with this irony. You left an honorable position on Luna to come to Earth and devote your last withering years to finding a cure for this disease. A disease that I already have the antidote for. In fact, come to think of it, I might have some samples with me in the palace. I like to keep them on hand in the event something tragic should happen to my betrothed or someone else necessary to my objectives. I could have the antidote brought to you, but hmm, I don't suppose I will. Worry not, my queen. I would not take it from you, even if you did. Now that I know what lengths you've gone to obtain it. The lengths I've gone to in order to cure a disease that, until this day, did not affect my own people? I do believe that's rather charitable of me, wouldn't you say? He slowly, slowly sat up. His head fell to his chest as he tried to recapture his breath, winded from that small exertion. I figured it out, my queen. I truly believed that all shells were killed when you took them from us. But that's not true. Are any of them killed? Or is it all just a show? A means of putting them into seclusion and harvesting their blood without anyone coming to look for them? Her lashes fluttered. You had a shell child once, didn't you? Remind me, was it a little boy or a little girl? Perhaps when I return home, I can find them and tell them how small and pathetic their father was when he died, right before my eyes. What is most interesting to me, the doctor said, scratching his ear and acting as if he hadn't heard her, is that the first documented case of letomosis occurred twelve years ago, and yet you've been collecting antibodies for much longer than that. In fact, it would have been your sister who began the experiments, if my math is correct. Lavana splayed her fingers on the counter. You have reminded me why you were such a terrible loss for our team, doctor. He swiped his arm across his damp forehead. His skin seemed translucent beneath the bright lights. This disease is all your doing. You've manufactured death to bring Earth to its knees, so that when the time was right, you would be there to save them with your miraculous antidote. One that you'd had stashed away all along. You give me too much credit. It was the team working beneath my parents that created the disease, and those beneath my sister who perfected the antidote. I simply implemented their research by determining a means of getting the disease down to Earth. By exposing lunars to it and then sending them here, having no idea what they were carrying? Sending them to Earth? Absolutely not. I simply made sure that my security personnel looked the other way when they escaped. The last word held a bite. She wasn't fond of the idea that some of her people chose to run away from the paradise she'd given them. It's biological warfare. Dr. Darnell coughed into his elbow, leaving spots of dark red. And Earth has no idea. And they will continue to have no idea. Because I'm going to stand here 
and watch you die. He laughed shrilly. You honestly think I would carry this secret to my grave? A twinge of annoyance traipsed down her spine. The doctor's eyes were glazing over, but his smile was enormous as he studied the window. This is a very large mirror I'm looking into. So impossible to hide from what I am. What I've become. My queen, you would not like to die in this room. I suspect you would tear off your own flesh if forced to stare at it for so long. She squeezed her hands into fists, digging her nails into the palms of her hands. Your majesty. Exhaling, she forced her hands to open. Her palms stung. Amory had returned with Jericho, her captain of the guard, looking as though he'd been in an impressive scuffle. Jericho bowed. My queen, Thaumaturge Mira and I, along with five of my top marksmen, managed to surround Lynn Cinder and her companions on the emergency landing pad on this tower's rooftop. Hope warmed her chest. And you got them? They haven't escaped after all? No, your majesty. We failed in our objective. Two of my men are dead, and the other three severely injured. I myself was unconscious when the spacecraft escaped with the traitors and the Emperor Kaito aboard. Her fury began to claw at her spine again, desperate to be unleashed. And where is Thaumaturge Mira? He respectfully lowered his gaze. Dead, your majesty. Lynn Cinder used her gift to torture her mind. I heard her screams myself. Those who were conscious have reported that, after the spacecraft departed, Thaumaturge Mira threw herself from the rooftop. Her body was found in the gardens. A mad giggling echoed through the room. Lavana spun back as the doctor doubled over his knees, kicking his heels against the table. She deserved it, the snake. After keeping my little golden bird locked up in her cage for so long. Your Majesty, Lavana faced Jericho again. What? We've found one of Lynn Cinder's accomplices aboard their ship prior to the confrontation. Her new pilot, it would seem. Jericho gestured toward the hall. Footsteps clicked, and a moment later, two men entered. Another guard escorting. Her smile was quick. Dearest Sir Clay. Though his wrists were bound behind his back, he stood straight and proper and seemed as healthy as ever. He clearly hadn't been treated like a prisoner aboard Lynn Cinder's ship. My queen, he dipped his head. She scraped her lunar gift over him, testing for signs of derision or rebellion, but there were none. He was as blank and malleable as ever. My understanding is that you abandoned your thaumaturge in a pivotal battle in order to side with Lynn Cinder against the lunar crown. Your being here leads me to understand that you are also involved with the kidnapping of my betrothed. You are a traitor to myself and to my throne. How do you plead? Innocent, my queen. She laughed. Of course you are. How can you plead thus? He held her gaze without remorse. During the battle aboard the spaceship, Thaumaturge Mira was consumed with the effort to control a lunar special operative who has joined the side of the rebels. With my own faculties open, Lynn Cinder forced me to comply with her will and fight against my Thaumaturge, ultimately leading to her abandoning the ship and leaving me aboard. 
Realizing this was an opportunity to ingratiate myself to the rebels, I have spent the past weeks acting as a spy with the intention of reporting weaknesses and strategies when I was finally able to return to my queen, who I am most honored to serve. She smirked. No doubt your eagerness to return encompassed a desire to see your beloved princess as well. There, finally, the tiniest ripple of emotion before the lake was once again still as glass. I live to serve all members of the Lunar Royal Family, my queen. She smoothed her fingers down her skirt. How can I believe that you remain loyal to me when you are standing before me in chains, having been dragged from the enemy's own ship? I would hope my actions prove my loyalties. Had I wanted Lynn Cinder to succeed in her objectives, I would not have sent Thaumaturge Mira a calm informing her where and when I would be arriving with that ship. Lavana raked her gaze over Jason before glancing at Jericho. Is this true? I can't say. Thaumaturge Mira did seem confident of the location when we went to intercept the traitors. But she didn't say anything about a calm. And she seemed furious when we found Jason in the cockpit. It was under her order that we took him into custody. All due respect, said Jason. I did shoot her during our last engagement, and the comm was sent anonymously. She may not have realized I was the one who'd sent the tip in the first place. Lavana waved away the statement. We will investigate further, Sir Clay. But as you claim to have been gathering information for weeks, tell me, what useful things have you learned about our enemies? I've learned that Lynn Cinder has the ability to control a lunar special operative, he said reciting the information with as much emotion as an earthen android. However, she is untrained and lacks focus. She shows no talent for simultaneously engaging in both mental and physical battles. Interesting speculation, Lavana mused. In your estimation, would she have the mental focus required to torture an enemy, driving them to the brink of insanity? Absolutely not, your majesty. Absolutely not. Well then. You are either much stupider than I ever suspected, or you are lying. As that is precisely what Lynn Cinder did today against my head thaumaturge herself. Another spike of emotion announced a sudden bout of nerves, but it was overshadowed by a loud thumping from the quarantine. Of course he's lying, the doctor screeched, his voice breaking. He had managed to haul himself off the lab table and was now pounding on the glass with his palms, leaving smears of bloodied spittle. She's capable of killing your head thaumaturge and all your guards and your entire court. She's Princess Selene, the true heir to the throne. She can kill you all, and she will kill you all. She's coming for you, my queen, and she will destroy you, Lavana snarled. Shut up! Shut up, you old man! Why won't you die already? He was too busy gasping for breath to hear her. He collapsed to the ground, hands on his chest, his wheezing punctuated with hacking coughs. Jason Clay, when she turned back to him, was staring skeptically at the window. But within moments, his eyes began to fill with comprehension. His lips twitched, like he was ready to laugh at a joke he just now understood. It was a rare show of emotion that only angered her more. Take him away. He will undergo a full investigation on Luna. As Jason was marched back into the corridor, she faced Thaumaturge Park again, her hands fisted at her sides. You are hereby promoted. B 
begin planning our departure immediately and alert our research team to this new strain of letamosis. Also, initiate mobilizing procedures for our soldiers. Lynn Cinder is too afraid to face me herself. The people of Earth will suffer for her cowardice. You understand that with the loss of Thaumaturge Mira's programmer, we are not able to transport our ships to Earth without notice. What do I care if Earth sees them coming? I hope it gives them time to beg for mercy before we destroy them. Amory bowed. I will see it done, your majesty. Lavana glanced back to see that Dr. Sage Darnell was sprawled out on the floor, his body seizing between his coughs. She watched him writhe and jerk, her blood still boiling at his words. As far as the people of Luna and Earth knew, Celine had died 13 years ago. Lavana was going to make sure it stayed that way. She was the rightful queen of Luna, of Earth, of the entire galaxy. No one would take that from her. Seething, she stepped closer, close enough that she could see the trail of tears left on the doctor's scourged face. Sweet crescent moon, he whispered, his lips barely able to form the words. He began to shiver. Up in the sky, he hummed a few bars of a song, a lullaby that seemed barely familiar. You sing your song so sweetly after sunshine passes. The last word hovered unspoken as he stopped shuddering and lay still, his blue eyes staring upward like empty marbles. Chapter 57 Satellite AR-817.3 Deflect tracker. Set alternating timer and check. Which should just leave satellite AR-944.1. And that should do it. Cress paused, breathed, and slowly lifted her fingers away from the cockpit's main screen where she'd spent the last three hours ensuring that any satellites in their path would be conveniently turned away from them as they passed. As long as the Rampians' orbital path held, they shouldn't be detected. At least, not by satellite or radar. There was still the problem of visual sightings, and as the Eastern Commonwealth had announced 20 minutes ago that an enormous monetary reward would go to anyone who found the stolen Rampian, every ship between here and Mars would be on the lookout. They had to be prepared to run if anyone did spot them, which was made extra difficult now that they no longer had a trained pilot on board. At least, not one who could see. Thorne had managed to talk Cinder through the liftoff procedures, with vast amounts of help from the Rampion's new auto-control system. But it had been a rocky takeoff, followed by an immediate switch to neutral orbit. If they were faced with anything requiring more complicated maneuvers before Thorne got his eyesight back, they'd be in trouble. According to Cinder, they'd be in trouble even when he did have his eyesight back. Cress massaged her neck, attempting to get her thoughts to stop spinning. When she was in the middle of a hack, it tended to fill up her brain until her vision hummed with coding and mathematics, skipping ahead to each necessary task faster than she could complete them. It tended to leave her in a state of drained euphoria. But for now, at least the Rampion was safe. She turned her attention to a yellow light at the base of the screen that had been annoying her since she'd begun. 
but that she'd been too preoccupied to deal with. As expected, when she prompted the ejection, a small shimmering decom chip popped out from the screen. The match to the chip that Sybil had taken from her satellite, cutting off any hope that Cress and Thorne had of contacting their friends. Friends. She squinted at the chip as she held it up, wondering if that was the right word. It felt like having friends, especially after they'd survived the mission together. But then, she didn't have anything to compare this friendship to. One thing she knew for sure, though, was that she no longer needed to be rescued. She looked around for something she could use to destroy the chip and caught the ghost of a reflection in the cockpit window. Thorne stood in the doorway, behind her, hands tucked into his pockets. She gasped and spun to face him, her full skirt twisting around the chair's base. Though it was dirty and torn in places, she hadn't had the time to change yet and wasn't entirely sure she wanted to. The gown made her feel like she was still living in a drama and was perhaps keeping her from going into shock at all that had happened that day. You scared me. Thorne flashed a moderately embarrassed grin. Sorry? How long have you been standing there? He shrugged. I was listening to you work. It's kind of relaxing. And I like it when you sing. She flushed. She didn't realize she'd been singing. Feeling his way forward, Thorne took the co-pilot's seat, setting the cane across his lap and kicking his boots up on the dash. Are we invisible again? To radars, for now, she tucked some hair behind her ear. Could I see your cane? He raised an eyebrow but handed it to her without question. Cress dropped the decom chip to the ground and crushed it beneath the cane's tip. A shiver of empowerment ran through her. What was that? Thorne asked. The decom chip you used to contact me before. We won't be needing it again. <sighs> Seems like that was ages ago. Thorne ran his finger along the blindfold. I'm sorry that you didn't get to see much of Earth while we were down there. And now you're stuck up here again. I'm happy to be stuck up here. She twirled the cane absently between her palms. It's a great ship, far more spacious than the satellite, and much better company. I can't argue with that. Grinning, Thorne pulled a small bottle from his pocket. I came in here to ask if you would help me with this. These are the mystical eye drops the doctor made. We're supposed to put three to four drops in each eye twice a day. Or was it two drops, three times? I don't remember. He wrote down the instructions on the port screen. Thorne unclipped the port from his belt and handed it to her. Cress propped the cane against the panel of instruments. He was probably worried you'd forget after such a high stress. She trailed off, her eye catching on the port screen text. Thorne cocked his head. What's wrong? The port had opened to a screen containing instructions for the eye drops, and also a detailed account of why Dr. Erland believed the plague was a manufactured weapon being used as biological warfare. But at the top of all that, there's a tab labeled with my name. Not Cress. Crescent Moon Darnell. Oh, it was the doctor's port. Cress's fingers glided over the screen and she'd opened the tab before her mind could decide whether it wanted to know what was in it or not. A DNA analysis, she said, and a paternity confirmation. Standing, she set the port on the control panel. 
Let's do your eye drops. Cress, he reached for her, his fingers gathering up the folds of her skirt. Are you all right? Not really, she looked down at him. Thorn had pulled the blindfold around his neck, revealing a faint tan line around his eyes. Gulping, Cress sank into the pilot's chair again. I should have told him I loved him. He was dying, and he was right there, and I knew I would never see him again, but I couldn't say it. Am I horrible? Of course not. He may have been your biological father, but you still barely knew him. How could you have loved him? Does it matter? He said he loved me. He was dying, and now he's gone, and I'll never- Cress, hey, stop it. Thorn swiveled his chair to face her. He found her wrists before sliding his hands down to intertwine with her fingers. You didn't do anything wrong. It all happened so fast, and there was nothing you could do. She bit her lip. He took my blood sample that first day in Farafra. She squeezed her eyes shut. He knew all this time, almost a whole week. Why didn't he tell me sooner? He probably wanted to wait for the right time. He didn't know he was going to die. He knew there was a chance we were all going to die. Her next breath shook inside her diaphragm. And as the tears started, she felt herself being pulled toward Thorn. He drew her into his lap, scooping one arm beneath her legs to keep the enormous skirt from tangling around her. Sobbing, Cress buried her face against his chest and let the tears come. She cried hard at first, the release pouring out of her all at once. But she almost felt guilty when, minutes later, the tears already started to dry up. Her sadness wasn't enough. Her mourning wasn't enough. But it was all she had. Thorn held her until the sound of his heartbeat became louder than the sound of her crying. He smoothed her hair back from her face. And though it was selfish, Cress was glad that he couldn't see her then, with her red face and puffy eyes and all the unladylike fluids she'd left on his shirt. Listen, Cress, he murmured against her hair once her breaths were almost stable. I'm not an expert by any means, but I know you didn't do anything wrong today. You shouldn't tell someone you love them unless you mean it. She sniffed. But I thought you said you've told lots of girls that you loved them. Which is exactly why I'm not an expert. Thing is, I didn't love any of them. I'm honestly not sure I would recognize real love if it was... She swiped the back of her hand over her damp cheeks. If it was what? Nothing. Clearing his throat, Thorn leaned his head against the back of the chair. Are you all right? Sniffing again, she nodded. I think so. I might still be in a little bit of shock. I think we all are after today. Cress spotted the bottle of the eyedropper solution beside the doctor's port screen. She didn't want to pry herself away from Thorne's arms, but she also didn't want to think about the doctor anymore. The secret he'd kept. The words she couldn't say. We should probably take care of these eyedrops. When you're done shaking, Thorne said. I don't like shaking things near my eyes. She laughed weakly and went to pull herself from his lap. Thorn's arms tightened, but only for a moment before he let her go. She forced her guilt back inside. She wouldn't think about it right now. After reading the doctor's instructions, three drops in each eye, four times a day, for one week, 
she unscrewed the top. Drawing the solution up into the dropper, she moved to stand behind Thorne's chair, her wrinkled gown swaying around her. Thorne propped his feet on the control panel again and tilted back until his face was turned up to the ceiling. She hadn't seen his eyes in days, but they were as blue as ever. Cress placed a hand on his brow to steady herself, and his cheek twitched. Here goes, she murmured, squeezing the dropper. He instinctively flinched and blinked, pushing the drops like tears down his temples. Cress brushed them away, unable to resist smoothing a strand of hair off his forehead. Her attention caught on his lips, and suddenly, self-conscious, she pulled her fingertips away. How does that feel? He squeezed his eyes shut for a moment. Like I have water in my eyes? Then he chuckled wryly, opening them again. Maybe the solution is just water and the doctor was playing a practical joke on me. That would be awful, she said, twisting the cap back onto the solution. He wouldn't have done that. No, you're right. Not after what we went through to get it. He lifted his head from the back of the chair, tugging at the bandana knotted around his neck. Though, he did make it pretty clear that he didn't think too highly of me. If that's true, it's only because he didn't know you well enough yet. True, I would have charmed him eventually. She smiled. Of course you would have. In addition to showing him your many other fine qualities, she said blushing as she set a reminder on the port screen to go off four times a day. But when she looked at Thorne again, his expression had become serious. Captain? His Adam's apple bobbed. Sitting up straighter, Thorne rubbed his palms together. I have to tell you something. Oh? Hope skittered through her veins as she claimed the pilot seat again. The luxurious dress poofed around her. The rooftop. The kiss. Had he realized how much he loved her? What is it? Thorne pulled his feet off the control panel. Remember when we were in the desert and I said I didn't want to hurt you because you were wrong about me? She nodded her fingers together. When you tried to deny how much of a hero you really are? She tried to put a hint of teasing into the statement. But her nerves were so jittery it came out as more of a frightened squeak. A hero. Exactly. Thorne rubbed a finger between the blindfold and his throat, loosening it. Here's the thing. That girl I stood up for when those jerks took her port screen. Kate Fallow? Right, uh, Kate Fallow. Well, she was really good at math, and at the time I was failing. The anticipation fluttering through her body turned to ice. Wait. Was this his confession? Something to do with Kate Fallow? He cleared his throat when she didn't say anything. I lost the fight and all, but she still let me copy her homework for a month. That's why I did it, not out of a misplaced desire to be heroic. But you said you had a crush on her. Cress, he smiled, but it looked strained. I had a crush on every girl. Believe me, it wasn't a big motivator. She squeezed back against the chair and pulled her knees to her chest. Why are you telling this to me now? I couldn't before. You were so certain that I was this other person, and I kind of liked that you saw me differently than anyone else. 
Part of me kept thinking that maybe you'd been right all along and it's everyone else who'd been wrong about me. That even I've been wrong about me, he shrugged. But even that was just my ego talking, wasn't it? And you deserve to know the truth. And you think my entire opinion of you was based on one incident that happened when you were 13 years old? His brow knitted. I'd thought I'd done a pretty good job of clarifying all those other incidents, but if you have more, by all means, let me ruin those for you, too. She bit her lip. The rooftop. The kiss. He'd kept his promise. He'd given her a kiss worth waiting for because she was about to die. They were both about to die. She knew it had been a risk, and probably a stupid one. And that was the choice he'd made, rather than let her die without experiencing that one perfect moment. She could think of nothing more heroic. So why wouldn't he mention it? Perhaps, more important, why couldn't she? No, she whispered finally. I guess I can't think of anything else. He nodded, though his expression was disappointed. So, given all this new information, you, uh, probably don't think you're still in love with me, do you? She shrank into her chair, sure that if he could see her now, he would know. The truth would be evident in every angle of her face. She loved him more than ever. And not because she scoured file after file of reports and summaries and data and photographs. Not because he was the dreamy, untouchable Carswell Thorn that she'd imagined kissing on the banks of a starlit river while fireworks exploded overhead and violins played in the background. Now, he was the Carswell Thorn who had given her strength in the desert, who had come for her when she was kidnapped, who had kissed her when hope was lost and death was imminent. Thorn awkwardly scratched his ear. That's what I thought. I figured it was just the fever talking anyway. Her heart twisted. Captain? He perked up. Yeah? She picked at the chiffon overlay of her skirt. Do you think it was destiny that brought us together? He squinted and, after a thoughtful moment, shook his head. No. I'm pretty sure it was Cinder. Why? I guess I have a confession, too. She pressed the skirt down around her legs, her face already burning. I, I had a crush on you before we even met, just from seeing you on the net screens. I used to believe that you and I were destined to be together someday and that we would have this great, epic romance. One eyebrow ticked upward. Wow, no pressure or anything. She squirmed. Her body was vibrating with nerves. I know. I'm sorry. I think you might be right, though. Maybe there isn't such a thing as fate. Maybe it's just the opportunities we're given and what we do with them. I'm beginning to think that maybe great epic romances don't just happen. We have to make them ourselves. Thorn shuffled his feet. You know, if it was a bad kiss, you could just say so. She stiffened. That's not at all what I... Wait, did you think it was a bad kiss? No, he said with an abrupt, clumsy laugh. 
I thought it was, um, he cleared his throat. But there were clearly a lot of expectations and a lot of pressure, and he squirmed in the chair. We were going to die, you know. I know, she squeezed her knees into her chest. And no, it wasn't, I didn't think it was a bad kiss. Oh, thank the stars. His head fell back against the chair. Because if I'd ruined that for you, I was going to feel like such a cad. Well, don't. It met every expectation. I suppose I should thank you. The discomfort melted from his features, and she was jealous as her blush stayed burning hot. Thorn held a hand out toward her, and it took every ounce of the courage she'd earned that day to tuck her hand into his. Believe me, Cress, the pleasure was all mine. Chapter 58 She dreamed that she was being chased by an enormous white wolf, its fangs bared and its eyes flashing beneath a full moon. She was running through crops thick with mud that sucked at her toes, her breath forming clouds of steam. Her throat stung, her legs burned. She ran as fast as she could, but her body became heavier with every step. The shriveled leaves of sugar beets turned rotten and brittle under her. She spotted a house in the distance. Her house, the farmhouse her grandmother had raised her in, the windows beaming with warmth. The house was safety. The house was home. But it receded into the distance with each painful step. The air around her became thick with fog, and the house disappeared altogether, swallowed whole by the encroaching shadows. She tripped, landing on her hands and knees. She rolled over, scrambling and kicking at the ground. Mud clung to her clothes and hair. The coldness from the ground soaked into her bones. The wolf prowled closer. Its lean muscles moved gracefully under the coat of fur. It snarled, eyes lit with hunger. Her fingers fished around on the ground, searching for a weapon, anything. They struck something smooth and hard. She grasped it and pulled it from the squelching mud. An axe, its sharp blade glistening with moonlight. The wolf leaped, gaping jaws unhinged. Scarlet lifted the axe, bracing herself, swung. The blade cut clean through the beast, cutting it into two pieces from head to tail. Warm blood spattered over Scarlet's face as the two wolf halves landed on either side of her. Her stomach roiled. She was going to throw up. She dropped the axe and collapsed back on the ground. The mud squished around her ears. Overhead, the moon filled up the whole sky. Then, the wolf halves began to rustle. They gradually rose up. Now, only the soft outer pelt of the beast, shorn in two. Scarlet could make out vague human-like shapes standing over her, each wearing half of the snow-white pelt. The fog cleared and Wolf and her grandmère were before her, holding their arms out, welcoming her home. Scarlet gasped, her eyes flew open. She was met with the sight of steel bars, the earthy smell of ferns and moss, and the clatter of a thousand birds, some trapped in their own elaborate cages. Others flocked in the tree branches that entwined around the enormous beams supporting the glass ceiling. 
a wolf yipped, sounding both sorrowful and concerned. Scarlet forced herself onto an elbow so she could see the barred enclosure on the other side of the pathway. The white wolf was sitting there watching her. He howled, just a short, curious sound, not the haunting howls that Scarlet heard in her dreams. She imagined he was asking if she was all right. She might have been screaming or thrashing during the nightmare, and the wolf's pale yellow eyes blinked with worry. Scarlet tried to gulp, but her mouth was parched, her saliva too thick. She must be going crazy to be carrying on silent conversations with wolves. He likes you. Gasping, Scarlet flipped onto her back. A stranger, a girl, was sitting cross-legged in her cage. So close, Scarlet could have touched her. Scarlet tried to push herself away, but the action sent pain rippling through her bandaged hand. She hissed and fell back onto the ground. Her hand was the worst of it. The hatchet had taken her left pinky finger to the second knuckle. She had not passed out, though she wished she would have. A lunar doctor had been waiting to bandage the wound and had done it with such precision, Scarlet suspected it was a very common procedure. But then there were also the scratches on her face and stomach from her time spent in the company of Master Charlson and countless aches from sleeping on hard floors for, well, she'd lost count of how many nights. The girl's only reaction to Scarlet's grimace was a long, slow blink. Clearly the girl was not another prisoner, or pet, as the extravagantly dressed lunars called Scarlet when they passed by her cage, giggling and pointing and making loud remarks on whether or not it was safe to feed the animals. The girl's clothing was the first indication of her status, a gauzy, silver-white dress that had settled around her shoulders and thighs like snowflakes might settle on a sleepy hillside. Her warm brown skin was flawless and healthy, her fingernails perfectly shaped and clean. Her eyes were bright, the color of melted caramel, but with hints of slate gray around her pupils. On top of all that, she had silky black hair that curled into perfect spirals, neatly framing her high cheekbones and ruby-red lips. She was the most beautiful human being Scarlet had ever seen. Yet, there was one anomaly. Or three. The right side of the girl's face was marred by three scars that cut down her cheek from the corner of her eye to her jaw, like perpetual tears. Strangely, the flaws on her skin didn't reduce her beauty, but almost accentuated it. Almost compelled a person to stare at her longer, unable to peel their eyes away. It was with this thought that Scarlet realized it was a glamour, which meant this was another trick. Her expression changed from awestruck and blushing, she despised that she was actually blushing, to resentful. The girl blinked again, drawing attention to her impossibly long, impossibly thick eyelashes. Ryu and I are confused, she said. Was it a very bad dream or a very good one? Scarlet scowled. The dream had already begun to wisp away, as dreams do. But the question reignited the memory of Wolf and her grandmother before her, alive and safe which was a cruel joke. Her grandmother was dead, and last she'd seen Wolf, he'd been under the control of a thaumaturge. Who are you? And who's Ryu? 
The girl smiled. It was both warm and conspiratorial, and it made Scarlet shiver. Stupid lunars and their stupid glamours. Ryu is the wolf, silly. You've been neighbors for four days now, you know. I'm surprised he hasn't officially introduced himself. Then she leaned forward, dropping her voice to a whisper as if she were about to share a closely guarded secret. As for me, I am your new best friend, but don't tell anyone, because they all think that I'm your master now and that you are my pet. They don't know that my pets are really my dearest friends. We shall fool them all, you and I. Scarlet squinted at her. She recognized the girl's voice now, the way she danced through her sentences like each word had to be coaxed off her tongue. This was the girl who had spoken during Scarlet's interrogation. The girl reached for a strand of filthy hair that had fallen across Scarlet's cheek. Scarlet tensed. Your hair is like burning. Does it smell like smoke? Bending over, the girl pressed the hair against her nose and inhaled. Not at all. That's good. I wouldn't want you to catch fire. The girl sat up just as suddenly, pulling a basket toward her that Scarlet hadn't noticed before. It looked like a picnic basket, lined with the same silvery material as her dress. I thought today we could play doctor and patient. You'll be the patient. She removed a device from the basket and pressed it against Scarlet's forehead. It beeped, and she checked the small screen. You're not running a fever. Here, let me check your tonsils. She held a thin piece of plastic toward Scarlet's mouth. Scarlet knocked her away with her uninjured hand and forced herself to sit up. You're not a doctor. No, that's why it's pretend. Aren't you having fun? Fun? I've been mentally and physically tortured for days. I'm starving. I'm thirsty. I'm being kept in a cage in a zoo. Menagerie. And I hurt in places that I didn't know my body even had. And now some crazy person comes in here and is trying to act like we're good pals, playing a raucous game of make-believe? Well, no, sorry, I'm not having any fun, and I'm not buying whatever chummy trick you're trying to play on me. The girl's big eyes were blank, neither surprised nor offended by Scarlet's outburst. But then she glanced out towards the pathway that wound between the cages, overgrown with exotic flowers and trees to suggest some semblance of being in a lush jungle. A guard was standing at the pathway's bend, scowling. Scarlet recognized him. He was one of the guards that regularly brought her bread and water. He was the one who had grabbed her rear end the first time she'd been thrown into this cage. At the time, she'd been too exhausted to do anything more than stumble away from him. But if she ever had the chance, she would break every one of his fingers in retaliation. We're all right, the girl said, smiling brightly. We're pretending that I cut off her hair and glued it to my head because I wanted to be a candlestick, and she didn't like that. While she spoke, the guard's glare never left Scarlet, only narrowed in warning. After a long moment, he meandered away. When his footsteps had faded, the girl pulled the basket onto her lap and rifled through it. You shouldn't call me crazy. They don't like that. Scarlet faced her again her gaze dragging down the raised scar tissue on her cheek. But you are crazy. I know, 
She lifted a small box from the basket. Do you know how I know? Scarlet didn't answer. Because the palace walls have been bleeding for years, and no one else sees it. She shrugged, as if this were a perfectly normal thing to say. No one believes me, but in some corridors, the blood has gotten so thick, there's nowhere safe to step. When I have to pass through those places, I leave a trail of bloody footprints for the rest of the day. And then I worry that the queen's soldiers will follow the scent and eat me up while I'm sleeping. Some nights I don't sleep very well. Her voice dropped to a haunted whisper, her eyes taking on a brittle luminescence. But if the blood was real, the servants would clean it up, don't you think? Scarlet shivered. This girl really was crazy. This is for you, she said, astoundingly bright once again. Doctor's orders are to take one pill twice a day, she tilted toward Scarlet. They wouldn't let me bring you real medication, of course, so it's just candy. Then she winked, and Scarlet couldn't tell if the wink was to indicate that the box contained candy or not. I'm not going to eat it. The girl listed her head. Why not? It's a gift to cement our forever friendship. She pulled the lid off the box, revealing four small candies nestled in a bed of spun sugar. They were round as marbles and bright glossy red. Sour apple petites, my personal favorites. Please, take one. What do you want from me? Her lashes fluttered. I want us to be friends. And all your friendships are based on lies? Wait, of course they are. You're lunar. For the first time, the girl deflated a little. I've only ever had two friends, she said, then glanced quickly at the wolf. Ryu had lain down, resting his head on his paws as he watched them. Other than the animals, of course but one of my friends turned into ashes when we were very little. A pile of girl-shaped ashes. The other has gone missing, and I don't know if he'll ever come back. A shudder ripped through her, so strong she nearly dropped the box. With goosebumps all around her arms, she set the box on the floor between them and picked mindlessly at her dress. But I asked the stars to send a sign that he was all right and they sent me a shooting star across the sky. The next day was a trial like any trial, except the earthen girl standing before me had hair like a shooting star, and you'd seen him. Do you ever make sense? The girl pressed her hands onto the ground and leaned forward until her nose was almost touching Scarlet's. Scarlet refused to pull away, though her brain hitched. Was he all right? When you saw him last, Sybil said he was still alive, that he may have been used to pilot that ship, but she didn't say if he'd been injured. Do you think he's safe? I don't know what your- The girl pressed her fingertips against Scarlet's mouth. Jason Clay, she whispered. Sybil's guard, with the blonde hair and beautiful eyes, and the rising sun in his smile. Please, tell me he's all right. Scarlet blinked. The girl's fingers were still in her mouth, but it didn't matter. She was too baffled to speak. 
the battle aboard the Rampion was mostly a blur of screaming and gunshots in her memory, and her focus had been on the thaumaturge then. But she did vaguely recall another person there, a blonde-haired guard. But the rising sun and his smile? Please. She sneered. I remember two people trying to kill me, and my friends. Yes, and Jason was one of them, she said, evidently unconcerned with the whole killing part of Scarlet's statement. I guess so. There was a blonde guard. Glee spread over the girl's face. The look had the power to stop hearts and brighten rooms, but not to Scarlet. And how did he look? He looked like he was trying to kill me, but I'm sure my friends killed him first. That's usually what we do to people who work for your queen. The smile vanished and the girl shriveled away, tying her arms around her waist. You don't mean that. I do, and believe me, he deserved it. The girl was beginning to shake now, like she was on the verge of hyperventilating. Scarlet decided without much guilt that if that happened, she wouldn't do a thing about it. She wouldn't try to help her. She wouldn't call for the guard. This stranger was no friend. Across the aisle, the wolf had climbed onto all fours and was pawing at the base of his enclosure. He began to whimper. After a few moments, the girl managed to get herself under control. Sliding the lid back onto the candies, she settled them into her basket and stood, hunching in the small cage. I see, she said. That will conclude this visit. I prescribe adequate rest and... She sobbed and turned away, but paused before she could call for the guard. Slowly, stiffly, she turned back. I wasn't lying about the walls that bleed. Someday soon... I fear the palace will be soaked through with blood, and all of Artemisia Lake will be so red, even the earthens will be able to see it. I'm not interested in your delusions. A sharp, unexpected pain shot up through the arm that Scarlet was using to support herself, and she crumpled to the ground, waiting for the pinpricks of pain to fade. She glared up at the girl, angry at how weak and vulnerable she was angry at the flash of a concern in the girl's eyes that seemed so honest. She snarled up at her. And I don't care for your mock sympathy either. Your glamour, your mind control. You people have built your entire culture on lies, and I want nothing to do with it. The girl stared at her for so long, Scarlet began to wish she hadn't said anything. But keeping her mouth shut had never been a great talent of hers. Then. Finally, the girl tapped her knuckles against the bars. As the guard's footsteps padded down the pathway, she reached into the basket and retrieved the box again. She set it down at Scarlet's side, tucking it beside her so the guard wouldn't see. I haven't used my glamour since I was 12 years old, she whispered, gaze piercing, as if it were very important to her that Scarlet understand this. Not since I was old enough to control it. That's why the visions come to me. That's why I'm going mad. Behind her, the bolts of the cage door clunked open. Your Highness. She swiveled on her toes and ducked out of the cage. Her head lowered so that her thick hair hid both her beauty and her scars. Your Highness. Stunned, Scarlet lay on the ground until her tongue began to turn to chalk from thirst. 
As far as she knew, there was only one lunar princess. Other than Cinder, of course. Princess Winter, the queen's stepdaughter. The unspeakable beauty. The scars that, according to rumor, had been inflicted by the queen herself. When she glanced back toward the wolf's cage, Ryu had wandered away toward the back of his enclosure. He had been given much more space to prowl than Scarlet, perhaps a quarter of an acre of dirt and grass, trees, and a fake fallen log that formed a quaint little den. Sighing, Scarlet looked back up at the glass ceiling, where she could see black sky and countless stars between the tree branches. Her stomach panged, a reminder that her one small meal had been devoured hours ago. And, unlike Ryu and the white stag that had lived in an enclosure farther down the aisle, and the albino peacock that sometimes wandered freely between them, Scarlet wouldn't get another meal until tomorrow. It took a long time of battling her weakened willpower, feeling the weight of the candies beside her. She had no reason to trust that girl. She didn't trust that girl. But after her stomach had begun to ache from hollowness and her head to spin with hunger, she gave up and pulled the lid off the box. She pulled out one of the candies. It was glass smooth beneath her teeth. The outer shell cracked easily, giving way to a warm, melty center that burst sweet and sour on her tongue. She moaned and let her head fall onto the hard floor. Nothing not even her grandmother's prized tomatoes, had ever tasted so good. But then, as she was working her tongue around her gums, searching out any missed bits of the candy, a tingling began to warm her throat. It expanded outward, into her chest, and through her abdomen and along her limbs, all the way to her missing finger, leaving a trail of comfort in its wake. When it was gone, Scarlet realized that it had taken her pain with it. Chapter 59 It was like being drawn slowly from the serene darkness. The way one wakes up when they've been having a lovely dream and their subconscious is struggling to hold them there just a little while longer. Then, with angry resignation, Kai was awake his eyes wide open and staring up at unfamiliar slats, the underside of a bunk bed. He rubbed his eyes, thinking maybe he hadn't awoken entirely yet. His chest was throbbing and there was a nauseous twist in his stomach. He turned his head to the side and felt an ache in his neck. Reaching up, he discovered a bandage taped beneath his hairline. But his attention was already moving on, wandering around the room. There was a tiny desk and a utilitarian closet on the other side. Though the room was so small, he almost could have touched them from where he lay. A dim light had been left on beside the door. The walls were metal, and the slightly scratchy blanket he lay on was military brown. Pulse speeding up, he reached for the bunk overhead to keep himself from hitting his head as he swung his legs over the side. His feet landed on the uncarpeted floor with a thunk and he was surprised to discover he was wearing shoes. Dress shoes, and dress slacks, and his wedding shirt and sash, now wrinkled and untucked. Great stars, the wedding. 
Mouth suddenly dry, Kai lurched out of the bed and stumbled toward the small window. He pressed his hands to either side. His stomach dropped in unison with his jaw. Great stars indeed. He'd never seen so many in all his life, and never so bright. It gave him a strange sensation of vertigo, like he should have been looking up into the night sky, but the gravity was all wrong. Where was the horizon to orient himself? A cold sweat beaded on his forehead as he pressed his cheek to the wall, trying to peer as far down as the small window would let him. And then, Earth. Kai shoved himself away from the wall. He nearly fell over, but caught himself on the upper mattress of the bunk. His heartbeat clanked and shuddered. Mysteries began to click together in his muddled brain. Cinder, a knife, the bandages on his wrist and neck, his tracking chips. Wasn't the chip in his neck supposed to be top secret? And a gun or something embedded in her hand, the lingering sting beside his sternum. Had she shot him? Raking a hand through his hair, he turned and wrenched open the door. He found himself in a narrow hallway, more brightly lit than the room had been. At the far end of it opened up into a kitchen of sorts. He could hear voices coming from the other direction. Pulling his shoulders back, he marched toward them. The hall opened into a huge metal room cluttered with plastic storage crates. Through a doorway, he saw the lights and instruments of a cockpit and another breathtaking view of Earth. Two people were seated in the cockpit chairs as he approached. Where's Cinder? They spun to face him and the girl launched herself to her feet. Your majesty! The man, a huge grin spreading over his face, was slower to stand, first grabbing a cane from against the wall. Welcome aboard the Rampion, your majesticness. Captain Carswell Thorne, at your service. He bowed. Kai scowled. Yeah, I recognize you. You do? The man's smile grew wider, and he nudged the girl with his elbow. He recognizes me. Where's Cinder? The girl swayed nervously on her heels. I believe she's in the pod ship dock, your majesty. Kai turned and marched out toward the cargo bay and yelped. Another man was sitting cross-legged on top of a packing crate, shirtless, with a needle in one hand, a thread in his mouth, and a pile of bloodied bandages beside him. His torso was marred by numerous wounds and scars, both old and new. He had a black tattoo stamped on his left arm. Pulling the needle through a gash on his chest, he let the thread drop from his mouth and nodded. Your majesty. Choking on his heart, Kai found himself anchored to the floor, expecting the man to leap at him and maul him to death at any moment. He hadn't yet seen one of the queen's wolf soldiers in person, but he'd seen plenty of vids. He knew how fast they were, how deadly. But after an awkward, silent moment, the man simply returned his attention to his wound. Um, your majesty? Starting, he whipped his gaze back to the blonde girl. Would you like me to take you to the pod ship dock? He forced his hands to unclench, reminding himself that he was the ruler of the Eastern Commonwealth and would behave accordingly, even among criminals and monsters. Thank you, he gasped. That would be appreciated. Cinder chewed on her lower lip while she twisted the wires together, fastening them with a wire connector. All right, try that. 
Aiko, flat on her back, cast her gaze downward, then tilted her head to the left. Her eyes brightened, and she tried to the right, daring to test the full range of motion. She beamed. It works! Cinder tapped her chin with the end of the fuse pullers. Mm, there's still a little bit of a bend in that third vertebrae, but there's nothing I can do about it now. We'll just have to wait until we can find a replacement piece. Try your fingers again. Aiko wiggled her fingers, then her toes. She lifted her legs until they were perpendicular to the floor, then kept going so that she was practically kissing her knees. Letting out a yelp of delight, she flipped forward, using the momentum to spring up onto her feet. It works! It all works! Aiko, knock it off! Cinder scrambled up beside her. I still need to- Before she could finish, Aiko pulled her against her bosom, squeezing and swaying and trembling with joy. An android, trembling with joy. You're the best mechanic an android could ever ask for. Say that again when you don't have an enormous gaping hole in your throat, Cinder said, prying herself out of the embrace. Aiko checked her reflection in the window of the pod ship and flinched. The paneling from the top of her throat to her sternum was flayed open to give Cinder access to her internal workings. Her central processor, wiring, and mobility mechanics were on full display. Oh, yuck, said Aiko, trying to cover the hole with both hands. I hate when my wiring is showing. I know the feeling. Cinder pulled a pair of pliers off the wall's magnetic strip. Come here. I'll see if I can bend some of that external paneling back into place. A lot of your skin fibers are beyond repair, so it's not going to be perfect, but it's all I can do right now. You might have to wear turtlenecks for a while. Sighing, Aiko came to stand beside Cinder. Figures that as soon as Captain Thorne brings home this marvelous body for me, those stupid lunars go and ruin everything. Cinder smirked. Stop talking for a minute while I do this. Aiko impatiently tapped her fingers against her hips while Cinder warped the external paneling into something that resembled the shape of a clavicle. Behind her, the door hummed open. Here she is, your majesty. Cinder stiffened, the pliers still clamped onto Aiko's paneling. She heard footsteps, and then Aiko screeched and shoved Cinder and her tool away. Don't let him see me this way, she yelled, diving behind the pod ship. Gulping, Cinder tucked the pliers into her back pocket and slowly turned around. Kai's gaze was dark as it swooped over her to the pod ship and Aiko's legs beneath it to the tool chests and power cords fastened to the walls before landing on Cinder again. Crescenthorn hovered curiously by the door. You're awake, she stammered. Then, realizing that was a stupid thing to say, she attempted to stand straighter. How do you feel? Kidnapped? How should I feel? She rubbed her wrist, tempted to call up a glamour to disguise her cyborg hand, which was also stupid, of course. And besides, it was something Lavana would have done. I was hoping you'd feel well-rested, she said, attempting a weak smile. She was met with no reaction. No smile, no chuckle, not even a flicker of humor. She pressed her lips together. We need to talk, said Kai. Thorne let out a slow whistle. No one ever likes to hear those words. Cinder glared at him. Thorne, 
Why don't you go give Aiko a tutorial with the cockpit controls? Excellent idea, Crest chirped, nudging Thorn back out the door. Come on, Aiko. Aiko was still hiding, hugging herself self-consciously. Is he looking? Kai raised an eyebrow. He's not looking, said Cinder. A hesitation. Are you sure? Cinder gestured exasperatedly at Kai. You're not looking. He cast his eyes to the ceiling. Oh, for all the stars. Crossing his arms, he turned his back on them. Cinder waved at Iko. All clear. We'll finish that up later. Braids bouncing, Iko darted to join Cress and Thorn in the hallway. I'm so happy to see you're all right, your majesty. She called to his back. As the door slipped shut, Iko flashed Cinder an encouraging thumbs up. And then they were alone. Chapter 60 I can't believe you kidnapped me, Kai yelled, spinning back to face her before Cinder could brace herself. We're on a spaceship, Cinder. In space, he pointed at the wall. It wasn't actually an exterior wall, but Cinder didn't feel the need to point that out. I can't be on a spaceship. I have a country to run. I have people who need me. We are on the verge of a war. Do you understand that? War, where people die. I cannot be up here messing around with you and your band of misfits. Do you even know that you're housing one of her mutants up there? Oh, yeah, that's Wolf. He's harmless. She rolled her eyes. Well, not harmless. He laughed, but it was sharp and delirious. I can't. How could, what were you thinking? You're welcome, she muttered, defiantly crossing her arms. He glowered rather ungratefully. Take me back to Earth. I can't do that. Cinder, he huffed, reconsidered, softened, just a bit. The change put an instant dent in Cinder's defenses, prompting a strange tingle behind her ribcage. She dug her fingertips into her elbows. As someone who understands why you did this and admires your ability to actually accomplish it, I am pleading with you. Cinder, please take me back. She filled up her lungs. No. The softness was gone instantly. Tipping his head back, Kai strung both his hands through his hair. It surprised her how familiar the gesture was. When did you become so frustrating? She scuffed the toe of her boot against the floor. Fine, as your emperor, I command you to return me to Earth immediately. Cinder rocked on her heels. Kai, your majesty. You may recall that I'm lunar, and lunars are forbidden from being granted citizenship in the Eastern Commonwealth. Therefore, you're no longer my emperor. This isn't a joke. She was surprised at how the words stung. Like before, in the palace, indignation reared up fast and burning. You have no idea how seriously I'm taking this. Are you? Do you even know what the consequences are going to be for what you've done? Yes, actually, I know this is a war. I'm aware that more people are going to die before this is over. But we didn't have a choice. Your choice was to stay out of the way. Your choice was to do nothing. This is my job, my responsibility. 
I'm the emperor. Let me handle it. By letting you marry her? That's handling it. It's my decision. It's a stupid one. Kai spun away, his hands clawed into his hair. Whatever product had been used to style it for the wedding was making it messier than usual. And stars, he looked good. Cinder smothered the thought, annoyed with herself. Please, he said, his voice strained as he faced her again. Please tell me this isn't some, some petty act of jealousy. Please tell me this isn't all because I asked you to the ball, or that time in the elevator, or- Oh, you can't be serious. I hope you don't really think so little of me. You shot me, Cinder, and then you kidnapped me. I honestly don't know what to think. Well, believe it or not, we didn't just do this for you. We're trying to save the whole world from your power-crazy fiancé. I refuse to let Lavana become empress. I refuse to give her free reign over the Commonwealth. But we need more time. More time for what? All you've done is make her angrier, so that when she retaliates, her wrath is going to be that much worse. Was that a part of your master plan, or are you just making this up as you go along? Cinder's blood began to boil, and she desperately, desperately wished she could tell them that, yes, of course, they had a grand master plan that was guaranteed to work, guaranteed to rid them all of Queen Levana and her tyranny forever. But there was no guarantee. Only a string of hope and the knowledge that losing wasn't an option. She swallowed hard. I have a plan to end this for good, but I need your help. Kai pinched the bridge of his nose. Cinder, I hate Levana as much as you do, but she's the one pulling the strings here. She has this army. It's like nothing I've ever seen before. Those little skirmishes that killed 16,000 people a couple weeks ago? Laughable compared to what she's really capable of. Plus, she has an antidote to letamosis, and we desperately need it. You know how much we need it. So, while the idea of marrying Lavana and crowning her empress makes me want to gouge out my own eyes, I don't have a choice. Gouge out your own eyes, she said softly. She could make you do that, you know. His expression darkened. So could you, I'm told. She looked away. Kai, your majesty. He waved his arms through the air. Kai is fine, I don't care. Cinder pressed her lips. It felt like a victory, but an unearned one. You have to trust me. We can defeat her, I know we can. How? Even if... Let's say you did. Let's say you even managed to kill her. There's still a whole posse of thaumaturges ready to take her place. And from what I've seen, they're not much better. We'll choose the person to replace her. We already have her replacement, actually. He snickered. Ah, I see. Because you think the lunar people will bow to just any one. He trailed off eyes widening, and for a moment his anger was gone. Unless, wait, you don't mean, she looked at the floor. He took a single step toward her. Did you find her? Princess Celine? Is that what this is all about? Cinder took the pliers out of her pocket, needing something to fiddle with while her nerves sparked and sputtered. 
She remembered that her metal hand was still bare, but Kai hadn't glanced at it once through the whole argument. Cinder. Yeah, she breathed. Yeah, I found her. Kai pointed toward the cargo bay. Is it that blonde girl? She shook her head, and Kai frowned. The girl from France? What was her name? Scarlet something? No, not Scarlet. She squeezed the pliers, trying to direct all her frazzled energy into them. Then where is she? Is she on this ship? Can I meet her, or is she still on Earth somewhere? Is she hiding? When Cinder said nothing, Kai frowned. What's wrong? Is she all right? I have to ask you something, and I want you to be honest. His eyes narrowed, instantly suspicious, which bothered her more than she cared to admit. She loosened her grip on the pliers. Do you really think I brainwashed you before, when we met? And all those times before the ball? His shoulders drooped. Really? You're changing the subject to talk about this? It's important to me. She turned away and started gathering the tools she'd used to fix Iko. I understand if you do. I know how it must have looked. Kai fidgeted with his ceremonial sash, then, after a moment, pulled it over his head and bunched it up in his fists. I don't know. I never wanted to believe it, but I've had to wonder. And when you fell and I saw your glamour, Cinder, do you have any idea how beautiful your glamour is? Cinder cringed, knowing that he didn't mean it as a compliment. Painful to look at were the words he'd used at the time. No, she said, distracting herself by returning each tool to its designated place on the magnetic wall. I can't see it. Well, it's... It was a lot to take in that night. But then... Lavana has manipulated me plenty of times, so I know what it feels like, and it never felt like that with you. She released the last tool. Of course, the media wants to think that's what happened. It would be convenient. Right, she glanced at him over her shoulder. A convenient excuse for inviting a cyborg to the ball. He blinked. For inviting a lunar to the ball. The knot that had been tied up in her stomach for weeks began to unravel, just a little. Not that it makes a difference what I say, but I never did. Manipulate you, I mean, and I never will. She hesitated. It was a promise that she didn't know if she'd be able to keep. Not if he didn't agree to help them. And I did try to tell you about being cyborg. I mean, kind of. I'm sure I considered it at least twice. Kai started to shake his head and she held her breath. No, you were right. If you'd told me, I probably never would have spoken to you again. He stared down at the sash twisted between his fists. Although, I like to think I would act differently now. He met her gaze and she noticed, with a start, that his ears had gone pink. And then his lips quirked into the faintest of smiles. It was the smile she'd been waiting for. It didn't last long. Cinder, look, I'm glad I'm not married right now, but this was still a huge mistake. I can't risk angering Lavana. Whatever you're planning, you have to leave me out of it. I can't, I need your help. He sighed, but it was shaky, and she could tell his resolve was crumbling. 
You think Celine can overthrow her? Biting the inside of her cheek, she nodded. I do. Then I hope she intends to do it soon. Dragging her hands down her sides, Cinder felt nervousness pressing against her ribcage. Kai, she may not be exactly what you are hoping for. I don't want you to be disappointed. I know you put a lot into trying to find her and... Why? What's wrong with her? Cringing, she knotted her fingers together. Metal and skin. Well, she was rescued from that fire, but it destroyed a lot of her body. She lost some limbs, and a lot of her skin had to be grafted, and she's just not entirely whole. He furrowed his brow. What do you mean? Is she in a coma? Not anymore. She braced herself for his reaction. But she's a cyborg. His eyes widened, but then his attention was darting around the room as if he couldn't look at Cinder while he adjusted to that information. I see, he said slowly before meeting her gaze again. But is she all right? The question caught her by surprise, and she couldn't help a startled laugh. Oh, yeah, she's great. I mean, half the people in the world want to kill her, and the other half want to chain her to a throne on the moon, which is just what she's always wanted. So she's fantastic. He stared at her like he was once again questioning her sanity. What? Cinder shut her eyes and tried to bury her mounting panic. Opening them again, she spread her hands, placating, hesitated. She looked at the ceiling, took in a breath, met his gaze again. It's me, Kai. I'm Princess Celine. Chapter 61 Kai's face was made up of confusion, like she'd spoken gibberish. His wedding sash slipped out of his hands and drifted to the floor. When the silence slipped toward awkward, Cinder cleared her throat. And in case you weren't sure, I was being sarcastic before about all that great stuff. Not that, I mean, I know you have your own things to worry about, so you don't need to, I don't, I'm fine, really. It's just been a rough few weeks with the whole, she circled her hands wildly through the air, peony ball lavana wedding thing, and now Dr. Erland is dead, and Scarlet is gone, and Thorn is blind, and Wolf... I'm not sure. He's so still these days, and I'm really starting to worry about him. But I've got it under control. I can do this. I'm... Stop. Please, stop talking. She clamped her mouth shut. The silence dragged on. Cinder opened her mouth, but Kai held up his hand. She shut it again, bit her lip. You? He finally said. You are Princess Celine? Grimacing. She rubbed at her wrist. Surprise? All this time? She ducked her head, suddenly uncomfortable at the way he was looking at her. Um, yeah, technically. Dr. Erland figured it out first when I was taken in for the cyborg draft. He ran my DNA and, yeah. But he decided not to tell me until I was locked up in prison, which complicated a few things. Kai guffawed, but not in a mean way. Inhaling a shaky breath, he rubbed the palms of his hands into his eyes, 
Then, as quickly as his disbelief had come, the comprehension came faster. Oh, stars. Lavana knows, doesn't she? That's why she hates you so much. That's why she's so determined to find you. Yeah, she knows. And it was you. This whole time, it was you. You're actually taking this better than I thought you would. He dragged both hands down his face. No, you know, it almost makes sense. Kinda. He scraped his gaze over her. Although, somehow I always pictured the princess, I don't know, in a dress. Cinder laughed. And I always thought that when I found her, it would be so easy. We would just present her to the world and announce her as the true queen, and Lavana would crawl away to some hole. I never imagined that Lavana would already know, that she would be fighting it. She quirked an eyebrow. I'm beginning to think you may not know your fiancé very well. He scowled at her. That's it, Cinder. No more secrets. I don't know if I can survive any more big reveals from you. So, if you have anything else to tell me, out with it. Right now. Cinder rocked back on her heels, pondering. Cyborg. Lunar. Princess. No more secrets. No more lies. Well, just one. She thought she might be a tiny bit in love with him. But there was no way she could tell him that. I can't cry she whispered instead, hunching her shoulders. Kai blinked twice, then scratched his ear and looked away. I already knew that. What? How? Your guardian may have said something about it, and I, I've seen your medical records. My, her eyes widened. You've seen, you know? You were a fugitive, and I needed to know more about you, and I, I'm sorry. She squeezed her eyes shut. She'd seen the diagram of her cyborg implants. Every wire, every synthetic organ, every manufactured panel. Thinking about it made her feel nauseous. She couldn't imagine what someone else would think when they saw it. What Kai must have thought. No, it's all right, she said. No more secrets. He took a step toward her. Your eyes, are they really? Synthetic, she murmured, when he couldn't say the word himself. And that's why you can't cry? She nodded, unable to look up at him, even as he came to stand not two steps in front of her. I don't need the tear ducts for lubrication, and they were getting in the way of... Um, she tapped a finger against her temple. I have a retina scanner and display in my eye. It's like a really small net screen, so there's a lot of wiring. Oh, stars, I can't believe I'm telling you this. She buried her face in her hands. It's kind of brilliant, said Kai. She nearly choked on her own laugh. Kai reached for her wrists. Can I see? She groaned, knowing that if she had the ability to blush, her face would be as red as his wedding sash. Mortified and resigned, she let him pull her hands away and struggled to hold his gaze. He stared into her eyes like he could see through to her control panel. But then, after a moment, he shook his head. You'd never even know. 
Trying not to fidget, Cinder raised her eyes to the ceiling, hating herself a little bit for what she was about to do. But what did it matter now? He would never again be fooled into thinking she was human. Watch the bottom of my left iris, she whispered. She turned on the retina display, pulling up a news feed she'd been watching before they got to New Beijing. News from the African Union. An anchor was talking, but Cinder didn't bother to turn on the audio. Kai dipped his head. It took a moment, but then his lips parted. There's, is that? Newsfeed, it's so small, just a dot, really. It looks a lot bigger to me. A tingle trapes down her spine at how he was studying her, almost in childish awe, and how he was so close, and how he was still holding her wrists. He seemed to realize it at the same time. His expression changed suddenly, and she knew he wasn't looking at the retina display anymore, or even her synthetic eyes. He was looking at her. Her heart pattered. Kai licked his lips. I'm sorry I had you arrested, but I'm glad you're all right. Really? You don't hate me for shooting you? His lips twitched and he glanced down. Taking her cyborg hand into both of his, he lifted it between them, eyeing the metal fingers. I don't remember that medical diagram saying anything about a gun. My security team probably would have found that to be useful information. I like to maintain an air of mystery. I've noticed. She watched his thumb trace the length of her fingers, finding it hard to breathe, impossible to move. The hand is new, she whispered. It appears to be excellent craftsmanship. His voice, too, had dropped. It's plated with 100% titanium. She didn't know why she said it. Hardly knew what she'd said at all. Bending his head, Kai pressed his lips to her knuckles. The plating had no nerve endings, and yet the touch sent a tingle of electricity along her arm. Cinder? Hmm? He lifted his gaze. Just to be clear, you're not using your mind powers on me right now, are you? She blinked. Of course not. Just checking. Then, he slid his arms around her waist and kissed her. Cinder gasped, pressing her palms against his chest. Kai pulled her closer. Seconds later, her brain began registering all the new chemicals flooding her system. Increased levels of dopamine and endorphins, reduced amounts of cortisol, erratic pulse, rising blood pressure. Leaning into him, Cinder sent the messages away. Her hands tentatively made their way to his shoulders before stringing around his neck. Then, somewhere in the rush of sensations, Cinder's attention snagged on the retina display, alone against the darkness of her eyelids. At first, it was only a dim, annoyed awareness, but then, Farafra, Lunars, Massacre. Her eyes snapped open. She pulled herself away. Kai started, what? I'm sorry. She started to tremble, still focused on the newsfeed. A moment passed in which she was watching the feed with horror, and then Kai cleared his throat. His voice had gone heavy. No, no, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have. No! She grabbed his shirt before he pulled away from her. It's not. It's Lavana. His expression turned cold. 
She's, she's retaliated. She attacked. Cursing, she tore her hands away from Kai, covering her face while she digested the news. A swarm of lunar soldiers attacked the oasis town not two hours ago, before disappearing into the desert as fast as they'd come. They murdered both the civilians and the Commonwealth soldiers who had been sent to question them. Pictures flashed across the scene. Blood. So much blood. Cinder, where? Where did she strike? Africa. The town. She gulped. The people that helped us. Something snapped in her head. Screaming, Cinder reached for the strip of tools, seized a wrench, and threw it at the far wall. It clattered harmlessly to the floor. She grabbed a screwdriver next, but Kai just as quickly lifted it from her hand. Has she put forth any demands? He said, absurdly calm. She clenched her empty fists. I don't know. I just know they're all dead because of me, because they helped me. She fell into a crouch, covering her head. Her entire body was burning up with fury. At Lavana, but mostly at herself, at her own decisions. Because she'd known this would happen. She'd made the choice anyway. Cinder, this is my fault. A hand settled on her back. You didn't kill them. I might as well have. Did they know the risk they were taking when they helped you? The danger they'd be in? She turned her head away from him. Maybe they did it because they believed in you, because they thought the risk was worth it. Is this supposed to be helping? Cinder, you want to know another secret? The biggest secret? She sat, splaying her legs like a broken doll in front of her. I'm scared, Kai. I'm so scared. She thought it might feel better to say the words out loud, but instead, they only made her feel pathetic and weak. She wrapped her arms around her waist. I'm scared of her and her army and what she can do. And everyone expects me to be strong and brave, but I don't know what I'm doing. I have no idea how to overthrow her. And even if I succeed, I have no idea how to be a queen. There are so many people relying on me. People who don't even know they're relying on me, and now they're dying. All because of some ridiculous fantasy that I can help them, that I can save them. But what if I can't? A headache began to throb against her temples. A reminder that she would be crying right now, if she were normal. Arms wrapped around her. Cinder pressed her face against his silk shirt. There was some sort of cologne or maybe soap there. So faint she hadn't picked up on it before. I know exactly how you feel, Kai said. She squeezed her eyes shut. Not exactly. I think pretty close. She shook her head. No, you don't understand. More than anything, I'm afraid that the more I fight her and the stronger I become, the more I'm turning into her. Sitting back on his heels, Kai pulled away just enough to look into her face without releasing her. You're not turning into Lavana. Are you sure about that? Because I manipulated your advisor today, and countless guards. I manipulated Wolf. I, I killed a police officer in France. And I would have killed more people if I had to. People in your own military. And I don't even know if I would feel bad about it because there are always ways to justify it. It's for the good of everyone, isn't it? Sacrifices have to be made. 
And then there are the mirrors. Such a stupid, stupid thing, but they... I'm beginning to get it. Why she hates them so much. And then she shuddered. Today I tortured her thaumaturge. I didn't just manipulate her. I tortured her. And I almost enjoyed it. Cinder, look at me. He cupped her face. I know you're scared, and you have every right to be. But you are not turning into Queen Lavana. You can't know that. But I do. She's my aunt, you know. He smoothed back her hair. Yeah? Well, my great-grandfather signed the Cyborg Protection Act, and yet, here we are. She bit her lip. Here they were. Now, let's never talk about you being related to her again, because I'm technically still engaged to her, and that's really weird. Cinder couldn't help laughing, even exhaustedly, even just to cover up the screaming inside. As he bound her up in his arms again, her headache began to fade replaced with the strength of his heartbeat and the way she felt almost delicate when she was pressed up against him like this. Almost fragile. Almost safe. Almost like a princess. You won't tell anyone, will you? She murmured. I won't. And if it turns out I make a terrible princess? He shrugged against her. The people of Luna don't need a princess. They need a revolutionary. Cinder furrowed her brow. A revolutionary, she repeated. She liked that a lot better than princess. The door zipped open. Cinder and Kai jumped apart, Kai scrambling to his feet. Cress, breathless and flushed, paused in the doorway. I'm sorry, she said, but the news feeds. Lavana, I know, said Cinder, forcing herself to stand. I know about Farafra. Cress shook her head, wild-eyed. It isn't just Farafra. Their ships are swarming Earth, every continent. Thousands of soldiers are invading the cities. Her other soldiers? She shuddered so hard, she had to grasp the doorframe. They're like animals, like predators. What is Earth doing? Asked Kai, and Cinder recognized his leader voice. Are we defending ourselves? They're trying. All six countries have declared a state of war. Evacuations are being ordered. Military is assembling. All six? Cress pushed her hair off her brow. Contorin has temporarily assumed the role of leader of the Commonwealth until your return. A heavy silence pressed against Cinder's chest. Then Kai turned to face her, and she could feel the gravity of his emotions without looking at him. I think it's about time you told me about this plan, he said. Cinder curled her hands into tight fists. The possibility of their success had seemed so faint that she'd hardly considered what would come next. She'd hoped they would have some time, at least a day or two. But she saw now that there would be no such respite. War had begun. You said yourself that the people of Luna need a revolutionary. She lifted her chin, holding his gaze. So I'm going to Luna? And I'm going to start a revolution. This is Rebecca Solaire. We hope you've enjoyed Cress, a Macmillan audiobook from Fiewell and Friends. This program was directed by Maddie Argyropoulos. Text copyright 2014 by Marissa Meyer. 
Production copyright 2014 by Macmillan Audio. All rights reserved.